The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. And welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. To the Gospel of John chapter 4, we are gathered this morning for Thanksgiving worship, and I trust that you've already felt the spirit of worship and the hymns and the prayers that we have sung and prayed together. Uh, Worship is our theme today. Giving thanks to God is one of the ways that honors Him and is the worship that He desires. And so today we continue our study of worship in the church, and we have, have several messages prepared on this, and I'll preach on worship again next week, and then we'll take a little bit of break for the uh, month of December to talk about other things having to do with the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. But worship is our subject. What is worship, and what are the requirements of worship? What is the Bible's method of worship? And our text is John chapter 4. We read a large portion of this chapter last week, and so we'll not read that again. And I want to concentrate on just a couple of verses in the passage for this morning's message. John chapter 4 is the familiar story of Jesus' visit with the woman at the well in Sychar. Sychar was a village in Samaria that lies between the two major places of Jesus' ministry. That would be Galilee on the north and Judea in the south. And this is a conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well, and it turned to the topic of worship as Jesus told her how God must be worshipped. Now, if you look at the 23rd and the 24th verses in John chapter 4, But the hour cometh and now is, when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Several weeks ago, in my first message on the ministry of the church, I discussed with you the exaltation of Jesus Christ and how that is the highest priority for the church. And we discussed how that all the ministries of the church feed upwards into this this indispensable activity. Everything that we do for Christ flows out of our exaltation of Him. And so likewise we can say that worship is the highest priority for Christians and for the church. We were created for the glory of God and the way that we glorify Him is through acts of worship. Jesus met this Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, and he told her this important information. The Father seeks people that are true worshipers. The truth of the matter is that none of us are born as true worshipers. Worship does not come natural to us, not worship in the right way. All of us know that there is a God, that's indisputable, the Bible tells us that, that's an innate knowledge that God exists. But we don't know the true God. We don't know how to worship Him. We, we can't experience that 
Because in our nature, we just don't know anything about the right kind of worship or the true God. And so we are incapable of worship because we are, in our natural selves, incapable of knowing the Father. And we can know the Father in only one way, and that is by His divine prerogative. Now, in the sixth chapter of the Gospel account, if we just turned over a couple of pages to the sixth chapter of John. This is what Jesus said in verse 44. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, considering the work of the Father in salvation, we learn here from John 6:44 that the Father must drag people to him. We don't come naturally, as I said. We don't seek God naturally. And this dragging, that, that seems contrary to most people's idea of free will. But Jesus said, no one comes to him except the Father draws him. And the literal translation of that word draw is drag. And the reason that God must draw people to him is that he wants to make them true worshipers. We were created to worship God, and the purpose of our salvation is to convert us from worshipers of self and of idols and from misconceptions of God to a worship that glorifies Him as He intended. Jesus said He came to seek and to save the lost. And so the ones that Jesus seeks and the ones that the Father draws are brought to salvation in Christ so that they may become True worshipers. And then we need to consider what the Holy Spirit does in salvation. The Spirit convicts the heart. He reproves the world of sin and of righteousness. Worship is a Trinitarian exercise. Who are those that can worship? Well, it's those whose hearts have been convicted. Those who have believed in Jesus Christ. Those who have been cleansed by His blood. They are made righteous before God. And they're made worthy to enter his presence. And they are the true worshipers that Jesus speaks of. Now, these these then are some of the themes we'll develop in today's message. The Trinity of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This Holy Trinity has a purpose in dealing with lost sinners, and that is to make them true worshipers. And this is the reason that God created man. It wasn't to complete him, Some people who think that way, that God needed us for some reason. It's not because, he didn't create us because he was lonely and he needed us to make him all that he could be. God doesn't need anything. God doesn't need us because God is supremely happy in himself. There's nothing that we can do to add to God. But if God should have a creature, if God should have a creation, it would be for the purpose of the recognition of his glory. God will not keep anyone. He will not preserve any person with eternal life that continues in rejection of him. He will not allow anyone to exist who does not worship him. And so thus, there is an eternal hell for those who reject Jesus Christ. Before man was created, the angels were the first to glorify God. They were created for this specific purpose. There were no men when the angels were created, and they were created for worship. 
God is the center of all. And worship is the sum of all the activity that takes place in his universe. And you've often heard me make this point. That salvation from hell. That's a wonderful gift for a lost sinner. But salvation from hell is not God's primary purpose. Neither can we say that. Life in heaven is God's primary purpose. Those purposes are the benefits of the primary purpose. We're saved for God to receive glory. And when we get to heaven, this is what we'll do. We will glorify God forever. And in fact, he intends for us to do that now. And if we think that there's any other motivation for our salvation than this, then we really don't understand the salvation that God gives. Today, the the saddest most warped view of God's purpose is found in the prosperity gospel. It's found in the self-esteem gospel. It's found in the man-centered gospel of Arminianism because that is all travesty against God's holy purpose because what it does is to exalt man rather than God. Worship and only worship, that is God's highest priority and everything else that God does extends from that priority. Now notice once again the point that's made by the text verses. The Father seeks worshipers and these worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now I want you to look at that passage. Verse number 24, and I want to comment on this before we go further. You'll see that the first time that spirit is used in verse 24, it's capitalized. And that refers to the fact that God is immaterial. The spirit there refers to his existence as the divine Holy Spirit. I mentioned just a moment ago what we experienced on Friday. A totally different idea of what God as a spirit is. No, God as a spirit is the Holy Spirit. So this is a passage that's Trinitarian. If you want to find passages to deal with Jehovah Witnesses and others who don't believe in the Trinity, here's one. The passage is Trinitarian. It's God the Son who speaks. It's God the Father who seeks worshipers. God the Holy Spirit is the one who functions in the world to convict people so they become worshipers. But then you look at the verse and you see that the second spirit is not capitalized. And that refers to the way that God is to be worshipped. He must be worshipped in a way that complies with what he is by nature and by those ways that are compatible with his divine will. And this is the part that must be learned because this is unnatural for us. We can't do this without God's help. Now in the last message, I began an explanation of this by saying first that worship is regulated by truth. Worship is regulated by truth. Let me, let me expand just a little bit on what we learned in the last message. That there is a right way and a wrong way to worship God. Before we get through the first three books of the Bible, God has given a full-blown system of worship that has rules and regulations that govern it. God was profoundly serious about keeping the letter of the law in worship. And we noticed examples. We noted these examples in the last message. We we talk of just a few. We talked about Cain, Nadab and Abihu, Uzzah. God killed people. 
for ignoring his prescription for worship. And we might well imagine that he would because, because false worship is an attack against the holiness of God, an attack against what he is by nature. False worship is degrading to him. And, and we need to remember that when we miss the right way to worship God, then we just miss worship altogether. And we don't fulfill God's purpose for us. Now today, we don't have the same ceremonial rites that they had in the Old Testament. We don't have the same things that are in those first three chapters that govern the way that we worship. But we ought not to fool ourselves into thinking that God is no longer concerned about the way that we do it. No, God is concerned about the way that we worship. Those ceremonial laws of the Old Testament are gone, but that doesn't mean that God has not kept his eye on worship. When the Corinthian church made a mockery of the Lord's Supper, there were church members that died because of the sin of false worship. Now, it seems almost unimaginable that that would happen. And who knows how many times that we are unaware of, the time, of, of when Christians become sick and die because it's related to their abuse of worship or that they miss worship. If worship is God's highest priority, then it will remain his highest priority because he's the immutable God. God never changes. He never changes purposes. His glory was, it is now, and it always will be number one wherever God is. And God is everywhere. So, God wants us to worship him. And really, if you want to categorize it, all sin fits under the umbrella of one big category. Sin is when you do not give God the glory he deserves. Sin is when you oppose God's holiness by disobeying his law. And thus when Adam committed the first sin, it was an act of false worship. And you might remember that the next time that you're tempted to sin. Be sure when you contemplate doing what God forbids, be sure to acknowledge, if I sin, I'm guilty of offering God false worship. Everything, everyone rather in the world worships. The worship is either false worship or it's true worship. And what Jesus did, he came, had this discussion to differentiate between the two. He came to make true worshipers out of false ones. And by the time that Jesus came into the world, uh, the Jewish nation was in a sad state. When he came, neither the Samaritans at Mount Gerizim nor the Jews at the temple on Mount Zion, practiced true worship. Remember how Jesus twice went into the temple to purge it because false worship was practiced in the place where true worship was intended to be. And then eventually, the, the, the most sacred place of Jewish worship was destroyed. The temple was destroyed because there was no recognition of Jesus Christ there. There was no true worship there. And so God was through with it, and he permitted the Romans to destroy it. And that was to, to take away the attachment to the continual animal sacrifices that ended when Christ satisfied the Father with that once-for-all sacrifice when he went to the cross to die for our sins. And God would not let animal sacrifices continue because that no longer represented Christ. 
It no longer said what Christ uh, would do because he'd already done it. And so that kind of worship didn't comply with the divine will for worship. Jesus said not one stone of the temple would be left standing upon another. And that's what happens when people do not worship according to truth. God destroys that kind of worship. Now we notice in the word that the apostles continued to go to the temple after the resurrection of Christ. But it wasn't a sacrifice. They went there to announce the true way. The true worship of Jehovah God in the person of Jesus Christ. Now take note that when Jesus spoke to the woman here in John 4. That the temple in Jerusalem was still standing. It was still there. It would be several years before it was destroyed. He knew that total rejection of him was coming. He knew what would happen in the crucifixion. He knew all about that. That's planned by God from before the world was ever created. He knew all about that. And so he could accurately prophesy that the temple would be destroyed. And he said in this conversation that the hour will come when true worshipers do not worship at the temple or at Mount Gerizim. So she needn't concern herself for very long about where true worship would take place or which is the right place to worship. Soon that temple would be gone and the proclamation of the gospel would be that the true, that true worship is not found in man-made temples. And thus this church building that we're in today is not critical for worship. It's an aid. We love it. We, it's helpful for us. It's a place where we can gather. But true worship is found in the people. The people are the church, not this building. One day, though, the Bible tells us that the temple in Jerusalem will be rebuilt. The size of it will be staggering. The worship that is there will be outstanding. That will happen during the millennium when the entire world recognizes Jesus Christ is the Messiah King. I was reading about this just the other day in Isaiah, and I thought about that magnificent worship. And as I was thinking on this, there were goosebumps that just came up on my skin. So I was thinking, what that worship will be like. And I recently read a book on Isaiah 53. And we know that the 53rd chapter is about the coming millennial kingdom when the Jews will look back on their hostile rejection of Jesus and they will repent of that rejection. And then wholesale, as, a, as an entire nation, Israel will come to the true Messiah. Israel then becomes true worshipers. And all nations flow towards Jerusalem to worship him. As the word of God says, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Do you hope for that? Do you live in anticipation of that? We live in a sea of ignorance, not knowledge of God. Evil covers the world as waters cover the sea. But there's a new day coming. There is a new dawn that is coming when true worship will encircle the globe. This is one of the things that I pray for every day. You know, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. I, I, that's one of the prayers that I have every day. And I pray that I would truly 
have a real sense of the Holy Spirit and have closer fellowship with the Son and the Father. And I think about that new temple that will rebuilt and how God will restore the dignity of worship that has gone so wrong. The dignity of worship that he desires. The pretended worship, the fakery that we find in modern churches today does nothing but degrade the holiness of God. And that will be gone. All eyes will be fixed on the king as he sits there on the throne of his majesty. The duties of temple worship will be carried out to the letter. And all of it will point to him. None of it is done to satisfy the selfishness of the flesh that we see today. It will be worship regulated by truth. Last week we also talked about, secondly, that worship requires the preaching of the word. I thought it was important that I emphasize that in the last message, and perhaps it may have been a little bit out of place for the direction I was going, but I did want to talk about preaching and the importance of it to worship according to the divine prescription. And I mentioned again today because I want to talk more about it today. Some don't understand all that I do when I come into this pulpit. Proclaiming the word of God is the supreme form of worship. The music program is not the primary worship time. Thank the Lord for musicians and for the marvelous job that they did today. And they are a part of our worship. There's no question about that. It enhances our worship. Sometimes music aids worship, sometimes it hinders worship, depending on what kind of music that it is. But those things, those are a part of worship. They are a function of worship. But everything that we do is to get us to this part and what I'm doing right now. And that is where we hear the Word of God. We need to hear God speak to us so that we can in turn speak back to Him in true worship. What does God want to tell you? Do you care to hear what God says? I mean, if you're not open to hear, you don't open your ears to hear God speak, you're not ready for worship. And I'm afraid this is what we see in so many churches. There there are some churches that have hours or seems like hours of repetitious choruses and swaying and clapping their hands and they emphasize the singing and they say, come to worship and then they get time for the word of God. And there is no exposition of the word, hardly any, and have little or no time to give to God's word. And so the Bible is mostly ignored in favor of stories, in favor of men's philosophies, in favor of political speeches or object lessons. That is not worship. Worship is according to truth, and truth comes through the medium of God's word. What did Jesus say? Thy word is truth. I want to warn you about this. I'm a little sensitive on this issue of preaching. Some may criticize my messages, that they contain much information, but maybe not enough application. And perhaps my messages aren't the type that stir up your emotions and give you a feel-good reaction to to what I say. But I confess, I, I find it very difficult to think to believe that preaching expository sermons and explaining what God's word says is not what God wants me to do. I can't understand how we have mixed in the same congregation 
There are those who would say, well, I never knew those things about the Bible. What you're, what you're telling me, I haven't heard before. I never knew that the Bible said that. I've never heard of some of these doctrines that you speak of. Please tell me more about them because they're in the Bible. And I don't understand how that reaction gets mixed with another in the same congregation, who's people who say, we don't need that. We don't really need to hear that. We don't feel so good with that. That doesn't stir us up too much. Too much knowledge puffs us up. There, there are just dozens of churches around that will try to make you feel good. Some will come into our services, sit down for a few minutes, and walk back out because they just don't feel the vibe. I've seen come, some come in and sit down. Five minutes later, they get up and walk out. And I apologize to you for the timing of this statement if you feel like it's time for you to get up and go out for any reason. Uh, but that's just the way it goes. They don't feel it, so they don't stay. Because what we do here is not emotionally charged, the atmosphere doesn't make them feel good. They're not interested in worshiping God in spirit and in truth. If they were, then they'd want all the information they could get from God's Word. Please, please, give me the Word. And, and is it wrong to feel good? No, it's not wrong to feel good. Is it wrong to be happy when you come into church? Absolutely not. You need to be happy. But what should make you happiest is to hear the Word of God. The psalmist wrote, Psalm 19, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. What makes Berean Baptist unique? I hope it's the Word. I hope it's the Word of God. The Word does all these things that the psalmist describes. It is perfect. It makes us wise. It rejoices our heart. It enlightens our eyes. It's righteous, more desired than gold. The Bible warns us, and it rewards us. Who could possibly want more than this? So we find that there aren't many true worshipers. Paul found that out. In Acts 17, he preached at Thessalonica. He didn't find too many worshipers. They ran him out of town. Then he moved on to Berea. And you know what he found was true of the Bereans? I hope that you do because they are our namesake. They searched the scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. The Bereans were people that stayed in the scriptures. The Thessalonians, on the other hand, spent no time in the truths of scripture. They had all that they wanted. They were content with what they already knew or what they didn't know. They were happy with that. But Paul showed the Bereans more, more about the Word of God. And they were glad to hear because they wanted to stay in God's Word. Now, we thank the Lord that there was a church established at Thessalonica. We, we studied Paul's two letters to them. They embraced later what Paul told them. 
In 2 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul wrote, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Isn't that marvelous? This is what he said about them in the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad, so that we need not speak anything. For they themselves show of us of what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Listen to that. They turned from idols to serve the living and true God. What does that mean? It means they became true worshipers. How? By hearing and believing the word, the gospel that Paul preached. So this is what we've tried to do here for the past 19 years. I've tried to give you more of what God said. I've tried to move you beyond the milk of the word. But there are some people who just love milk. They just love milk. Milk, they think, builds strong bones. So they think they've grown on milk, and milk has then made them strong enough to criticize. What happens to them? There's no worship. We need to understand what it means to worship, because, because for some Christians, I think it's truly an ethereal concept. They think they know, they get a little bit close to it, but they just don't know what true worship is. So we're going to finish today by taking a moment to define worship. Worship defined, that's third. What is worship? Well, reducing it to the simplest terms, and this really doesn't have to be hard, not intended to be, this is the definition of it. Worship is honor and adoration directed to God. Worship and adoration directed to God. Very simple definition. But how do we do it? Well, I've already mentioned that some believe it's the music program. It's not unusual to call the, the worship, the, the one who leads the music, the worship leader. Then, then you have worship, worship teams and you have a worship band. That's, I think, the most common misunderstanding in churches. I want to tell you about a friend. It was a close friend. His goal in life was to be a worship leader. A worship leader. He wanted to play music. Uh, he loved music. And he was in some large churches as their worship leader. But this, this young man was not often... I mean, he, he would go to church and lead worship, but he was not a regular to attend church. Sometimes during the week, he would have a few drinks, get a little bit tipsy. Sometimes he would go to places and do things that most of you would be appalled with. But the same guy could go to church and even a false church and lead their worship. He would lead the congregation in worship. Now, I need to ask you, is there something wrong with that picture? Is there something wrong? How do you honor and adore God? That's the question, isn't it? How do you do that? What do we do? To honor and adore God. Do, do we sing to Him? And we tell Him how much we love Him? When our hearts are as black as coal? And yet, many, probably even most, come to worship in that way. Jesus confronted cold, corrupt worship when He dealt with the Pharisees. He said, 
Ye hypocrites, this is Matthew 15. Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And this is what we see in churches. People come to church carrying all the baggage of the way that they've spent their week, and they come with unrepentant hearts, they come with sin on them, so they could not honestly look up into the face of God. And they sing, and they pray, as falsely as a Pharisee, or one of the false prophets in the days of Jeremiah. You can't come to worship God that way. So let's look at this for a few minutes. What do we need to worship? The complaint that Jesus had with the woman at the well was that worship at Mount Gerizim and worship at Mount Zion were both unacceptable. If we are to worship God, we must find acceptable worship. Wouldn't you say that's true? That has to be true. What is acceptable worship? We find it in three areas. First, Acceptable worship is outward. There's a critical statement made in Scripture concerning outward worship. It has to do with the way that we treat others. You've heard me many times in messages repeat, and you've read it, the second greatest commandment, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now, I want you to hold that thought, and then listen to Romans chapter 14. In the 11th verse, Paul said, For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Bowing the knee to God. Would you judge that to be worship? I think that all of us would say, that sounds a lot like worship. Well, do you happen to know what Paul is discussing in the passage? The subject is the treatment of weaker brothers. He speaks of being careful not to put a stumbling block in the way of weaker brothers. And everything that you do, we're taught that we need to consider, how does that affect others? You're always thinking of the other person. You're watching out for others. You're careful in what you do in consideration of them. Now listen, as he goes on in the 18th verse of that same passage, he says, For he that in these things serveth Christ, what? Is acceptable to God and approved of men. And so when you treat your brother in the right way, it is acceptable to God. What's the example that we have from God? Well, we know that he's compassionate, don't we? We know what God does towards others. And so you can see that your worship begins before you ever make it through the doors of the church building. And perhaps this is one of the huge misunderstandings about worship. Jesus said to the woman, there will come a time when you don't worship here or at Jerusalem. So people are thinking that is the place. That's what that's what kicks off worship. It's the place where you are. No, worship is not confined to a place. You worship where you are. And when you have Christ on your mind and you treat your brother with kindness and you consider him, you're worshiping God. That's acceptable. Verse 18 says our worship must be acceptable. And when we serve Christ in this way, we are worshiping God. Here's another interesting thought. This one concerns evangelism. If we're speaking of outward worship, listen to what Paul wrote in Romans 15, 16. 
That I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost, ministering the gospel of God, being evangelistic is worship. It is acceptable to God. Oh, but now we're stepping on all our toes, aren't we? Because most of us don't worship God that way. Many members would say, well, no, 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 I'm not interested in that. Don't need to do that. And so they miss opportunities for worship. Evangelism is outward worship. You know, another important aspect of worship, it concerns sacrifice. Throughout the Old Testament, there were sacrifices. Sacrifice was always linked to worship. False worship even had sacrifices. In the New Testament, sacrifice is mostly figurative. It's not about killing animals. It's about killing self, spiritually, of course. But now I want you to go to Philippians chapter 4. Here Paul is talking about an offering. The Philippians sent an offering to Paul by the way of a disciple named Epaphroditus. And he wrote in Philippians 4, verse number 18, he said, But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you. And listen to this. An odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. Do Do you see that Old Testament language? Do you see the symbolic picture here? In the Old Testament, they had sweet-smelling sacrifices. And Paul said, your offering is this. It is sweet-smelling, a sweet-smelling sacrifice. And notice he says, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And so when you give, it is worship. When you help others that are needy, what are you doing? You're worshiping God. You know, we, we, I think we should all feel conviction on that point. What have you given? What have you sacrificed? We can't worship God with tithes and offerings still in our pockets. What is acceptable worship? Loving, sharing. Love and sharing are two things that take the focus off of self. Many ministries tell you, think about self. It's, it, it's all you. But God says, worship By forgetting self, love and share with others. That's the outward dimension of worship. Secondly, acceptable worship is inward. Acceptable worship is connected to your behavior. What did Jesus say rules your behavior? We all know, don't we? He said it's the heart. What's in your heart? That dictates what kind of person you are. And the evidence of what has happened in your heart shows up in your behavior. Now see, see if this doesn't make sense. Who can worship God then but those that have a clean heart? A clean heart. A purified heart. What must you have to be a clean heart? Well, you have to be justified. You must be reconciled to God. Inwardly, you must be given a clean heart, justified and sanctified. Sanctification, that's your holiness. This is what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 24. Who shall ascend unto the holy hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, 
who hath not lifted up his soul into vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Do you see what he's telling us? Who can ascend to the worship of God? You must have a clean heart. You only have a clean heart by belief in Jesus Christ. The scripture says you can walk with the Lord. You can go up to him. You can go to his mountain of worship. Now, I want you to listen to this interesting statement about walking with the Lord. This is in Ephesians chapter 5. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. So you see what happens when you walk in goodness, in righteousness, in truth, in holiness? It is acceptable to the Lord. And haven't we already said, being acceptable to God, that's what true worship is. You honor Him when you're acceptable to Him. Do you see that? Do you understand that? As parents, what speaks well of the parent? A child that is acceptable. A pleasing child. Listen to another verse from Paul, 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says, I exhort therefore that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Verse 3, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, in the sight of God our Savior. What is good in the sight of God? A life lived in godliness and honesty. Must you then come into the building to worship? No. When your heart is right, when you are holy, when you walk with God, you are acceptable to Him and you are worshiping God. Now let's wind ourselves down with the third aspect of this definition of worship. Acceptable worship is upward. Worship must, of course have God as its focus. All that we do here has God as the focus. He's the central. He is central to all of it. He saves you to worship Him. We've already said Christ came to get you to worship God and it is through Christ that you can look upward to God. Hebrews 13 says, By Him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. So this upward thrust of worship is praise. Worship distills into thanksgiving and praise. Psalms are great examples of worship because they're filled with thanksgiving and praise. Do you need the building for that? Do you need to be here? No. You start outside with all the people that you're around. You start by making worship an everyday practice. And then by the time that you come here on Sunday, you should be ready to give everything that you are into the praise of our God. And let me add this. I don't want you to gather from this that coming to this place to worship together with the church is unnecessary. All that I'm pointing out is the building's not the generator of worship. It's not. And the church is not the building. I've said that. 
This place does not generate our worship. We can't get it started here. It has to start with what we are out there. Because you have to come in with a clean heart to worship God acceptably. It is acceptable and well-pleasing and necessary that you come to the meeting. Because the assembly is the church. And what does the Bible say? Christ is glorified in the church. You can't leave it out because praise is here. Preaching is here among us. Corporate prayer is here among us. Worship is here among us. So learn what worship is. Don't be confused about it. It might be that some Christians just open a very small packet of worship on Sundays. Many will just skip the church service. They try to go it on their own. Christ never intended for you to go it on your own. He gave us the church, the assembly, the fellowship to glorify Him. So don't let yourself be the missing part of worship. Outwardly, inwardly, upwardly, out there, in here. Let's praise and thank God. Worship Him in the beauty of holiness. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.